Welcome in, everyone. Thanks for joining me for this episode where I have the privilege uh, to host a wonderful uh, meditation and Dharma teacher, Andrew Holacek. Uh, welcome, Andrew. Great to be with you, Scott. Nice to see you. And thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Um, we're going to be talking about Andrew's book, um, some of Andrew's uh, work as a uh, Dharma teacher, spiritual teacher, and, and uh, Buddhist teacher, I would say, as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to start with a quick introduction to Andrew for some of you who don't know him. So um, Andrew Holacek is an author and spiritual teacher who offers talks, online courses, and workshops in the United States and abroad. As a longtime student of Buddhism, he frequently presents uh, this tradition from a contemporary perspective, blending the ancient wisdom of the East with modern knowledge from the West. Drawing on years of intensive study and practice, he teaches on the opportunities that exist in obstacles, helping people with hardship and pain, death and dying, and problems in meditation. Known as an expert on lucid dreaming and the Tibetan yogas of sleep and dream, he's an experienced guide for students drawn to these powerful nocturnal practices. And uh, there's a lot more, but I just, you know, we'll say that for now. Yeah, welcome again, Andrew. Yeah, it's a delight, really. Look forward to our conversation. Yeah. Um, well, I have a lot to ask you. And, uh, okay. you know, um, I'd, li I'd like to get into your background a little bit because, you, you know, you're, you're a very long time student of, of Tibetan Buddhism and, you know, the teachers, um, you know, lamas you've been able to study with are, are some I really admire. So I'd love to hear about that at some point. Uh, but maybe we could just start off talking about, about your new book. So, Andrew, um, well, you're, I would call you a prolific author. <laughs> you know, because you have quite a few books. I mean, you have you have more than one. Let's put it that uh, way. I think I think eight or nine. I lose track actually. Someone wow, it's it's actually okay. I thought it was like five. It's eight or nine. Wow. Yeah, wonderful. Um, and so your new book is is called Reverse Meditation, correct? Correct. Absolutely, Reverse Meditation. Yep. Subtitle: yeah. How do you it use was, your pain and most difficult emotions as a doorway to inner freedom? There you go. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, when I saw it, I was like, "Oh man, I wish I wrote this book." You know, it's kind of like because like, it's like it's very dear to my heart what you talk about in the book. You know, it's kind of part of my core practice. Um, I mean, it's part of the lineages we study as as well. Yes. Yeah, but um, just for the listeners, uh, you know, I'd love if if we can get into it and, and just sharing kind of. Um, you know, what's this book about generally in, in your own words? Like, you know, yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, you know, it, it, the practice itself, just to, to contextualize it a wee bit, and um, and then I can get into the into the nitty-gritty, actually comes, as you probably know, Scott, from the Mahamudra tradition. I mean, I, I learned it in the context of my three-year monastic retreat, um, and it was just a really small riff in, in a classic meditative text that I said, whoa, now this is really interesting. And in that particular setting, it was basically um, creating as many thoughts as you possibly could, making mm -hmm. your mind as wild as it, it possibly can be. And so I said, well, this is interesting. And when I left the retreat, um, I started playing around with these, you know, kind of in the role of like a cultural translator. Like, how can we extend the spirit of these practices to other um, enterprises? And, and as you mentioned in my introduction, I, I work a lot with death and dying and end of life, where hardship and pain are a real challenge, right? Yeah. So I just started to explore, extrapolate, and um, integrate these practices in a number of different ways in my own life. And that was a real game changer for me because it, it there fundamentally allowed me to reverse my relationship to unwanted experiences, to reverse mm -hmm. my understanding of meditation and expand it radically so that I could include situations that previously were almost antithetical to meditation um is ways to actually accelerate my my practice and so the this little known um, family of reverse meditations i think is something that's really applicable in this day and age with so much stress and divisiveness and and everything we see in the world today is just so contentious that i thought maybe now is time to to share this and, and the real confidence comes from my personal experience with working in it. Um, even though, as I write in the book, there's a fair amount of substantiating literature from a number of world wisdom traditions, 
the the real confidence comes from me working with this and also in my clinical practice you know i'm i'm a, a doctor of dental surgery and i i have worked with intensive clinical pain situations i know the pathophysiology of pain um, i've written i i hate to say 40 50 000 medications uh, prescriptions for medications including narcotics wow. so i work with the clinical aspects of pain I've also been involved in scientific studies and some of the more um, esteemed labs in the country, um, bringing meditators in to see how meditators respond to um, controlled onset of pain. And so, yeah, I kind of bring this east-west, north-south, broad-spectrum approach to working with hardship, archetypally using pain, physical pain, um, but then also really extending it to emotional duress and, and uh, emotional upheaval. And so, it's it's really this intense uh, applicability right now of these practices that we can use these in so many ways. And maybe I can share a couple brief ways that people can engage in them, like starting from today. Um, yeah. But they're, they're really powerful practices, very little known, and I hope to change that. Yeah, cool. So, so you know, as we get more into, you know, I'd love to op open you up and, and, you know, allow our listeners to, to get as much... Uh, um, benefit from your knowledge here but as we kind of make our way in you know one one question i had was um what are we reversing i mean you're acknowledging it sort of but you know for for a casual listener or someone who's newer to meditation what are we reversing yeah yeah the reverse you're reversing a couple things first of all you're reversing your relationship to adverse experiences um we are trained in the west and there's there's you know there's some kind of biological um history here so this is why an integral approach to these practices are, are in order that we're biologically trained and that trained isn't the right word but basically hardwired that whenever we feel pain un uncomfortable experiences we recoil we pull away and that has tremendous applicability in the biological realm right i mean if we didn't have that capacity we wouldn't be here talking about this new relationship to pain right yes. so a, a, a healthy, adverse relationship to unwanted experiences is a biological necessity. But I work in an integral world, and so I think what happens sometimes is we have these biological drivers, evolutionary drivers, that can become devolutionary retardants. Mm. So what we do, uh, or what these practices do, and what I work to kind of translate in a certain sense, is reversing our relationship to hardship, to pain, emotional, any any unwanted experience, period. How can you take these circumstances and actually allow them onto the path and a quality of radical acceptance and then even accelerate the path? And so, as you know, this is, this is resonant with Western alchemical principles, with Eastern tantric principles, transforming obstacle into opportunity led into gold. So that's one thing that it reverses. And the second is it reverses and therefore also expands our um, limited notion of what meditation is. I mean, meditation, first of all, is a multivalent term. It's like sports. When, yeah. when people say meditation, like, okay, well, there's more than just mindfulness. I mean, there are yeah. dozens and dozens of practices, just like there's dozens of sports. And so as powerful as, as mindfulness revolution is, I'm a huge fan of it. There are some near enemies. And unfortunately, probably a little bit of a consequence of the, the comfort-ridden new age trajectory that you know, meditation is about getting zen. It's about chilling out it's about just pacifying that's fine i'm not dissing that at all when the world's on fire chilling out's a good thing yeah but you know again where do you go um when rock meets bone as they say in tibet or the rubber uh, meets the road and so it reverses our relationship to meditation where it's like things that previously obstructed our meditation now actually accelerate it and this is where the kind of tantric alchemical approach comes in, where, where actually you go into these untoward experiences. And so, in, in, uh, as I playfully say, by putting your meditation into reverse, you will find yourself going forward. Because it just opens so much more potentiality. I mean, this allows you to basically enter a type of lifetime retreat in the midst of your daily life. Because it, it, it basically opens the highway of meditation to encompass everything, um, even those things that are most antithetical to what we are deemed to be spiritual. I mean, most people don't think about a spiritual relationship to pain. I mean, what does that really mean? Well, yeah. and if we go through the four stages of the reverse meditations, the fruition is in fact 
developing a non-dual spiritual relationship to pain. And and I can speak from my own personal experience with things like kidney stones, like mm. one of the most amazingly painful things you can have. That became a, an extremely powerful, literally kind of spiritual experience for me because I had these reverse meditations at my side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you're also speaking, you know, to my heart, to my language, as I as I shared in the beginning too, because it's I, I found the same thing. There's a certain, you know, there's a certain amount of, um, I guess we could say comfort. You know, we were initially trying to encounter in meditation. I, I don't know if there's a way around this. This is kind of just my opinion. There's sort of like this is where I, I would say like the, you know, you you named it as kind of um, uh, sometimes it gets. Uh, uh, incorporated in, into new age philosophies and or you know secular mindfulness and stuff that you know people initially turn to these things because they want some relief they but then feel- yeah they want to feel better and and you know i think you can feel better you know you can feel a little bit better but as you're naming and pointing out and you know i think what you and i've found over our time as buddhist practitioners there's a limit to that you know there's there's a, there's a hard i i hit a hard wall personally <laughs> yeah totally and, and actually a book i'm working on now is uh, uh entitled okay i'm mindful now what it's an yeah. endorsement and a critique of the mindfulness revolution um because as i said earlier hey i'm a huge fan of mindfulness right you, yes. you can't do any of these more so-called advanced practices without that platform but some people don't really understand that the mindfulness sedates. It doesn't liberate. Yeah. Um, and so if you really want to really want to grow and create what I playfully refer to as a kind of industrial strength meditation, which means industrial strength mind, you've got to expand. You've got to open, you know, invite all these previously untoward experiences onto the path, relate to them in a new way. And you're going to realize there really are opportunities um hidden within these obstacles and so that again is is a fundamental charter here yeah wonderful yeah i'm I'm really happy you know you're you're not only writing this material but you're teaching on it you know you're proliferating it because i think we're we're reaching a a little bit of a mature phase where you know more and more people are coming into meditation right i'm sure you're seeing students come in from you know just just having access to apps, having access to basic mindfulness. And then there's a lot of people who are ready to take that next step, as you're saying, beyond mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. And and that's really the enterprise of this book and, and the one that's down the pike. They're both in the same spirit. It's like we have these amazing um technologies at our disposal. Um, and especially as you know from the the Tibetan tradition, it's one of the characteristics of Tibetan Buddhism sometimes literally called the vehicle of skillful means. I mean, they have meditations for everything. And that's that to me is what sold me on. It's like, wow, I can practice when I'm basically doing anything. When I'm sick, I'm dreaming, I'm sleeping, I'm dying, I'm in pain, there's a meditation. Sign me up. That's yeah, a really yeah. great way to work with one's experience under any particular circumstance. Nothing's left out here, right? There's no weeds yeah. in this. Everything's welcome. One of, one of my favorite... Uh, Lojong texts or mind training texts is from one of the Dojupchens, and it's a, uh, you know, one of the translations is uh, transforming suffering and happiness. And yeah. often when I'm teaching it, people get a little confused, like, wait, why would we want to transform happiness? You know, where isn't that what we want? And I'm like, oh, okay, now we have a conversation. You know, now yeah. we have something interesting to talk about because you know, you're referring to that because you know it includes. You know this question is 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 the objects of our attachment actually bringing you know meaningful joy meaningful happiness long term you know is prosperity in a sense bringing that and so as you're saying like we not only bring adversity into the path we bring prosperity into the path well that's that's so spot on my friend and it's like i once heard a zen priest say this it just blew me away like 30 years ago i was just so struck by it when he said there's no tyranny as great as the tyranny of success. I mean, what an interesting <laughs> comment. Yeah. And this this relates to provi- um, provisional feel-good meditative strategies, conventional happiness as we know it, what we think of as, as the, the successful kind of way to live one's life. Yeah. Well, even if you're living in the penthouse of samsara, it's still samsara, right? It's just the highest feel-good strategies. And so exactly like you said, this practice kind of levels the playing field. It, it takes these provisional and sometimes intoxicating states of conventional happiness, takes a really deep look at those, 
like what's really taking place when you're engaging in, um, in the pursuit of happiness. And it kind of levels it down. And at the same time, it brings up painful experiences until you develop this kind of uh, equanimous one-taste relationship to both. The highs don't yank you up in a manic way. The lows don't take you down in a depressive way. And therefore, I, 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 I love this quote from uh, Krishnamurti, allegedly. I, mm-hmm. I was so struck when I heard it. You know, this guy was an amazing teacher, right? Taught for, I don't know, 60, 70 years. Yeah. Amazing. Towards the end of his long life, someone asked him, what's the secret to your kind of unflappable contentment? And what he said is really beautiful. He says, you know, I don't mind what happens. I mean, that's the most amazing thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so this, this practice is the, these practices are really impl- implementation strategies for that. I don't mind what happens. I don't mind yeah. if I get kidney stones. Um, last year I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, right? Oh, wow. And so it's like, you know, this is non-trivial stuff. And so instead of like, oh, crap, it was like, oh, wow. I mean, this is interesting. And so the, the, the kind of synchronicity it was like more than interesting to me. Here I am putting the final touches on this book on a reverse meditation, and I get diagnosed with prostate cancer. And so I was like, whoa, okay. And so as I went through this amazing battery of all these, I don't, you don't need to go into the details, right? Not very <laughs> experiences, including a, a five-hour radical prostatectomy. Wow. And all the post-op sequela. Hey, I had these practices with me lockstep the whole time. And I, I tell you, this is where my confidence comes from. I mean, I'm no different than you. I'm no different than anybody else listening to this program. I may have spent a little bit more time working with my mind than a few other people, but I have the same mind and heart as anybody does. And heck, if this stuff can help me this way, I think it can help a lot of other people. And that, that's my inspiration. It's like, well, let, let's get this out there and let other people work with these practices. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, I, I didn't know you, you you went through all that, Andrew. So, I mean, how's your health now? Um, I'm, well, thank you for asking because I got yeah. it early. I, I'm a health professional, so I do my annuals and we picked it up really early. And uh, my Harvard-trained surgeon, after they did everything, said, I think we can use the word cured. So I'm, I'm great. in great shape. Um, yeah. A nice, interesting learning experience this last year. And again, the... The kind of confluence of events between the publication of this book and me going through one of the most challenging experiences of my life was was not uh, lost on me. Yeah. And again, that's why I have so much conviction and passion. It's like, man, this stuff was so helpful to me when they're doing these really unpleasant things. And I'm sitting there and I just take my mind into this um, practice space that I worked with through these things. And it was like, hey, completely workable. And yeah. to Community is just really huge, but yeah, thanks for asking. I'm doing okay. Yeah, wonderful. Um, glad to hear that. We, we need yeah, you around. Me too. Yeah, <laughs> we need you. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, before we get, actually get into the meditations themselves, and hopefully, I thought you could talk a little bit more about the four step process too. Um, you know, I, I'd love to hear. You know, so you did a traditional uh, three year retreat in the Kagyu tradition. Maybe you can share for those of you know, for those listeners who are curious about that, you know, briefly what that is. And then I'd love to hear how you were introduced to these reverse meditations and what, what you were working through, you know, more or less during that time in the retreat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did it with, uh, under the tutelage of, uh, in the guidance of Trunga Rinpoche, who just recently passed, one of the great Kagyu masters of the century. Amazing individual. And, yeah. um, we did it in a really unique way. We did it in a one year in, one year out fashion. So it was actually a five year retreat. Mm-hmm. I found it absolutely brilliant. Um, because as you know, when you're doing a traditional, like one block, three year thing, the practices, there's so many meditations you're introduced to. They come at you so fast that the, the ability to digest, metabolize, really incorporate it is really difficult, which is why many people often do two, three-year retreats, because the second time they sort of get it. So for us, it was one year in, full on, and then, you know, robes, shaved head, the whole monastic thing, I loved it. And then I had a year out in the world to work with integrating the practices, mixing meditation with post-meditation, with life, um, stabilizing what I had practiced, and also then preparing for the next round. So I thought it was absolutely brilliant, this one year in, one year in, one year out. It, it, it was just fantastic. So yeah, I like that. after that, that adventure, um, that's when I really started to appreciate the skill set 
of the Tibetan tradition and how it really allows you to um, enter a kind of lifetime retreat in the midst of everyday life. That's the real gift. Because on one level, I mean, meditation is remedial work, right? I mean, the, the point is not meditation, man. No, <laughs> it's really the not. Is, the point is life. The point is living a full, enlightened, authentic life and being of benefit to others. And so, even though I'm a huge fan of retreats, I, 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 I have a daily practice, dedicated, very disciplined. I do annual retreats. To me, it's like, especially in this day and age, it's mixing my meditation with life, um, yeah. doing these like short little meditation sessions frequently, all kinds of ways to just bring the meditative and post-meditative world together. So that so, was the okay. Sorry to interrupt you. I, no, I just want to, I love that you're saying that, you know, because, you know, you we met when I was just coming out of being a monastic for nine years. Right. Remember, I saw you, you were in still robes. Still oh, was robes. I still in robes? Okay. I couldn't remember if I was just coming out or I was... Yeah. Okay. So it's still a monk. So shortly after we met, I, I returned my vows, and um, and you know it's similar for me. I I, I did uh, like six month, uh, four to six month uh, times in solitary retreat, and then would come out and would do that for nine years, more or less. Okay. Um, but um, so it was, wasn't a one year block, but it was you know these blocks and then come out. And I and, you know having returned my vows, I don't know how I would integrate practice now without that gift of coming in and out, you know, like that. It's so true because, you know, as powerful as retreat is, I mean, there are near enemies lurking everywhere. And I think most people know what a near enemy is. Wherever you find light, you will find shadow, right? Yeah. So the near enemy of confidence is hubris. The near enemy of compassion is pity. Um, mm. I should say equanimity is pity. So, and so to me, it's like, this ability to um, see even the near enemy of retreat. You, you can slip into spiritual bypassing and, and all kinds of ways where instead of facing life fully, you, you're you're escaping from it. Um, and so to me, exactly what you're talking about, we're on the same page, this ability to go into retreat, to work on your thing, and then come in and, and kind of test your stability and, and then also stabilize, augment it in, in the um the kind of blast furnace of everyday life that to me is, is the real um gift that i experienced with my five five-year retreat that's the way i really look at it yeah. and also inspired me to work with a lot of the other stuff I've, I've mentioned or you've mentioned in the introduction when i write and teach on the nocturnal meditations um maybe we can say a little bit about those there's five of them in my cartography that's another way to further expand meditation into life into sleeping and dreaming and then all the work I'm doing with death and dying was a way to bring meditation into that. And so I look back over my own life, you know, 50,000 foot view looking down. And it's really about extending, extrapolating, expanding the meditative mind to include everything. And this latest book is in that same spirit, you know, taking things again that were previously almost anti-spiritual, anti-meditative. Yes. And now I realize, well, this is like a hyper meditation. This is like a hyper pedagogy. And to me, that I have to say that's the biggest surprise doing these things mm. is the way that they've actually accelerated and catalyzed my so-called psychospiritual path. You know, it's really like, whoa, you want to put the accelerator down on this thing. Start start bringing the really difficult situations onto the path. Now you yeah, really I feel like for, for me, it's almost like a necessity, you know, being like uh, having a young daughter now. Uh, being in a country where I don't speak the language fluently, you know, um, how do you say it? Just working with the general, you know, adversity I come into in life. It's almost like if I don't apply the meditation, any kind of meditation that includes my suffering, my practice just, you know, it, it doesn't go anywhere. It, it flounders. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm projecting this kind of fantasy that someday I'll get to it, you know. And then, you know, I, I think there's so much of, the, of this in Buddhism in the West. And I don't, you know, I'm not criticizing anyone or anyone in particular. It's just something we each have to find. That's why I appreciate you writing this book so much. Because I think there's a lot of fantasy out there. Because, you know, we read stories of our spiritual heroes, Longchampa, Melarepa in the Tibetan tradition, you know, etc. And, and those are those are real stories. But sometimes we can put them on a pedestal where we don't know how to engage with what's happening now in modern life. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a challenge. Well, you also mentioned Milarepa, right? I mean, on one level, yeah. oh, he's the, he's the archetype of working with hardship, right? I mean, he went into 12 years of yeah. blistering retreat, 
superhuman hardship. And because of the strength of his understanding and his view, which is I spend a lot of time in this book strengthening this notion of right view. Um, because without the right philosophy of view outlook, you know, people are going to go, okay, let me get this straight. You want me to do what? <laughs> right? <laughs> you yeah. want me to go into the most uncomfortable emotional, physical state and meditate in that arena? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. And again, so, I'm not making this up. This is in the tradition, right? We know about it as channel ground meditations. In the tantric approach, you have the practice of Tonglen and the Mahayana, Theravadan approaches. So this particular tome simply puts something that's already in the tradition, and not just the Buddhist tradition. You'll find this in others as well. Yeah. And just brings it into a, a, a kind of a more pointed, uh, exclamatory format. Yeah, there's this, yeah, I think there's, you know, I have this very, you know, I've always had this fantasy, and I think it's just some kind of karmic imprint. Um, I love the sadhu traditions in India, and I love the the milieu of how, you know, uh, tantra as a as a form of of exploration of liberation, you know, has this cross cultural cross uh, tradition, you know, thing. Where I think in the West we often box these things in and we label them as isms and stuff, but in India, as you know, they never existed like that. They existed more mixed. Absolutely. And. And then these this imagery of you know uh, a sadhu and so for me that can kind of be a fantasy or a charnel ground you know like like you mentioned so just for some of the listeners who don't know what we're talking about if it's okay Andrew I'll just say something oh wait, no I was going to say we should define it totally yeah and I want I want I want to ask you to define right view in a second uh, from your perspective but uh, but yeah charnel ground uh, you know just imagine you know we you know we have these very curated cemeteries in the United States right for those listeners who are who are there. And uh, a charnel ground is nothing like a curated cemetery. It's uh, you know at best it's it's a it's a place where people where there's open cremation. At worst, it's a place where where bodies were thrown, uh, clothes and all. And you know you just imagine what happens in this kind of place at night, right? All the all the kind of the creepy crawlies and and you know carnivores come out. And supposedly meditators would go there to do certain practices, especially a practice called shit in Tibetan tradition, which is a practice of offering the body in imagination. And there's there's usually instruments that accompany it. And um, so, yeah, so the charnel ground becomes this metaphor, right, Andrew, of this place that is full, you know, is full of all of our fears, is full of our all of our, um, you know, the most frightening uh, things and a, and a literal charnel ground is that, but you know, I don't know about you. I find my life ends up being a charnel ground a lot of the time, just not a literal one. You know, yeah, yeah. Charnel ground, the charnel ground principle is really an important one. You know, it, it archetypally represents the most unwanted of all experiences. I mean, yeah. you, you just imagine. And so today, uh, charnel grounds would be, I mean, emergency room on a Saturday night. Yeah. Sites of natural disaster, war, that kind of thing. Just really like, whoa, this is really an intense place. And so that, that doesn't mean, oh, geez, you want to become a spiritual thrill seeker and, and seek out these crazy things. No. Basically, what it means is you use this channel ground principle as a way to, like you were just saying, look at the, the channel grounds in your own life, those dimensions of your experience that you don't want to have anything to do with. And then bring those, invite those into conscious awareness, establish a new relationship to them, and then you'll find, again, saying this over and over because it's so important, that these um, instances in life, these circumstances that previously seemed so highly obstructive, now become catalyzing. Um, yeah. And again, that's no small thing. So, so, so briefly, you know, again, because I don't want to assume all, all the people listening to this or watching on YouTube, um, you know, yeah. understand what we mean by right view. So, so just kind of a brief ex explanation to set yeah. up the, because for you and I, that's sort of like. Those that's the that forms the foundation for all the meditation is is the you know yeah absolutely absolutely well you know classically this is articulated in in the Buddhist teachings of the eightfold noble path where eight incredibly powerful factors that are um, worth considering or worth implementing if one wants to in fact um, work on oneself spiritually and so right view is first and I would say arguably most important of those. Um, is basically in Western jargon, you would say like outlook or philosophy, you know, the kind of what is the doctrinal, what is the, uh, the, the, the uh, theoretical, and I say it's only theoretical because we haven't experienced it yet, but what are the theoretical underpinnings behind what we're doing here? And so this is actually very important 
And I would often, when I was doing my three-year retreat, and the lamas would come in every year, six months or so, to teach us on the new set of practices, I, I made it um, a real point to ask every one of them, like, what's, what does it mean to accomplish this meditation? In other words, what is real? What am I really doing here? What's the view? Because when I'm doing, as you know, these ex- extensive practices for countless hours, I, I live in America. I, I want to know what I'm doing and why, right? So yeah, I bring my yeah. skeptical attitude. And, I, and so I spend a ton of time in this book setting this right view, again, to, to, to support this radical reverse relationship that really does go against the grain of everything we've been taught in the Western world and, and our um, kind of feel-good comfort strategies, right? And so the right view is, is actually quite important. In fact, I mentioned Milarepa earlier, this, this incredible Tibetan saint, revered in all the Buddhist t- traditions for having attained his awakening in one lifetime by enduring these superhuman hardships and, and 12 years of blistering intense retreat. Well, what allowed him to stay in there for that time and endure this type of hardship was in fact the strength of his view, brought about by the great skills of his teacher, Marpa, who forged in his student and his liege this a view so formidable, a view so strong that he was willing to do anything. And so in a conventional way, just very briefly, if you want to become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, it's really the strength of your view that's going to get you there. If you really have a vision in mind, you really want to go there, the strength of you, you want to lose weight, you want to accomplish anything, whether you know it or not, you're working with right view. And so the this Buddhist tradition just makes that unconscious process more conscious, more overt, so that we can cultivate it more directly and therefore use it to support us as we go through uh, journeys on the path. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Um, so I want to circle back to your three retreat now because I, I, I really yeah, cool. sorry I, I interrupted you as you were talking about that. Um, yeah. So I, I would just love to hear how you how you were first introduced to these reverse meditations and the principles of it and through your retreat, and then you know a little bit of your experience like as you initially started to practice them. Yeah. Right. So the the classic introduction to this, and I think I might have intimated this at the outset, was in a. Um, set of teachings the cla- uh, called pointing out the Dharmakaya text for the deeper divers listening, which is a classic, um, what's called Mahamudra practice manual. And Mahamudra is, is arguably the highest set of teachings in, in the, the Kagyu school of Tibetan Buddhism, which is one of the four main schools. And so I learned it very classically within that context. And the way I learned it there, um, Scott, was, um, and you may know this text yourself, a very short little clip on, um, for the next couple minutes, literally bring about as many thoughts as you possibly can in your mind. And, and so when I first came across this, it was like, oh my God, I finally get to do what I've always wanted to do on the cushion, right? It's just like, let my mind go effing crazy. Yeah. And so you sit there, it's actually a very interesting thing to do. It's not quite as easy as you think. <laughs> Sit down for, for a minute or so and just try to make your mind as wild as you possibly can. And and why would you do that? Well, there's a number of reasons. One is, and you all you have to kind of do it to see the power of it. It's not that hard. You 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 can notice that you sit in the center, in this kind of um silent center of this voluntary cyclone, bearing witness to this just kind of crazy display of your own mind. And it's an exaggerated way to help you understand um, and work with a, a more sensitive relationship to the display of that mind. And so one immediate consequence for me, and I really came to appreciate this because I'm a member of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and I work with a lot with insomnia with my with my patients, with my clients, you know, six, seven forms of insomnia. And one of the things that just this one application of reverse meditation does is let's say you're suffering from this number one sleep disorder. You wake up in the middle of the night, your mind is going ballistic, right? You can't go to sleep. Your mind is just all over the bully place. And most people, or a lot of people would have this adverse um, relationship to that and go, oh my God, I'm screwed. Tomorrow's shot. I'm going to be a wreck. I'm going to be exhausted. It's like, oh crap, right? Well, no. Now what, when you're armed with this reverse meditation, you go, oh, wow. 
And you sit there and you just watch your mind, just like you do with your little practice. So you have this kind of witnessing capacity, this meditative ability to watch this blazing display of your mind without beginning swept up in it. And, and that then just reframing the way the mind plays out in, in, in insomnia can really help you. And so, you know, having a, a big um, emotional upheaval in life, same sort of principle, the mind's going crazy, this reverse practice will start to click into gear. And so what I did from there, Scott, is then um, after studying this, then in the three-year retreat, we were introduced to the death practices, what are called the Bardo Yogas. And it was really in, in those practices that I really started to apply these reverse meditations within that. Um, and then it wasn't much of uh, an extension to start to work with, with overt physical pain in that regard. So once you get so the really cool thing about the reverse practices is on one level, it is kind of a one size fits all meditation. The approach is actually quite simple. Simple doesn't mean easy, but it's quite simple. And that's basically some of the things I can walk you through through the four stages. And so that's what makes it kind of um, cool in its own meditative way is that if you practice it in one capacity, you realize how applicable it is in others. And so like, for instance, if I'm teaching a retreat on these things, in addition to what I just talked about, we will voluntarily bring on unwanted experiences like bite your lip, dig your fingernail into your, do something that hurts. And then I'll go, I'll walk through the four stages in a bit. Then I invite people to change their relationship to it. Another thing that we do, um, is I'll, I'll bring in some boom boxes and create a cacophonous environment with just all this like noise and stuff happening. And, um, it's amazing. I think maybe because of the somewhat intense nature of these practices, again, held by the right view. I find that it doesn't take very long for these things to be incorporated into your meditative curriculum. And by this, what I mean is you do this reverse meditation with sound, for instance. And we don't do this, you know, maybe for three, four, five minutes. We do it in really digestible bits. But boy, the next time you're on the street and a siren goes screaming down and blasting, what are you going to do? Instead of like, oh, crap, you're going to go, wow, reverse meditation. And so you you replace... And this is a huge narrative in the book. You replace this kind of default contraction, habitual contraction. You replace that with yeah. open. So reactivity is replaced with responsibility. And so therefore I can say more, more. And then really the power for me, um, one of the most constantly applied aspects for me is because I'm not always in physical pain. I'm not always dealing with a lot of these other, um, kind of physical aspects. To me, it's the emotional upheavals, and I can say more about this later, that when I'm really struggling with emotional states of anxiety or worry or fear, these practices also apply to those states. And so it really does have this one-size-fits-all um, power. Um, once you get the hang of it, it's like this you can apply this to anything that hurts. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Um, yeah, for me, it's it's similar. It's... it's um although I do have some sciatica a little bit these days from sitting too much, right. uh, not in meditation. That's like sitting and editing video for my YouTube channel and my course. But, um, so it's not, I want to make sure it's not a, people don't mistake that for virtue, <laughs> but, um, yeah, mostly I, yeah, for me, it's the same. It's mostly emotional upheavals and, you know, that either existential, worry fear anxiety and or acute you know just just some situation coming up um but it's interesting i i, I don't know for you but i but i know with me and, and also you know mentees i work with on a, on a one-to-one and group basis you know it it could really feel like the world is on fire in some of those experiences you know i mean it it it's not physical pain but it it almost is worse sometimes in a way you know well for sure for sure. I mean, you know, the, the Buddha really talked about this, you know, the, the whole notion of the second arrow, right? Yeah. It, it's often the what we bring to it, the storylines we bring to it. So the parable here is somebody gets smacked somewhere. I, I like the image of the arrow in the eye. That's that's particularly pointed, <laughs> right? That's the first arrow. And then the second arrow is everything that is added on top of that, all the conceptual yeah. overlay, all the commentary. And so um, I, I riff a little bit on this principle in the book when I have this little playful equation 
I think it's more important than E equals MC squared, actually, which is P, I'm sorry, S equals P um, times R, which basically is what? Suffering equals pain times resistance. This is somewhat important because pain and suffering are not the same thing. Suffering is an inappropriate relationship to pain, usually brought about by what? Resistance. And so if you if you do a little basic math, you drop the R, you get rid of the resistance. Fundamentally, what happens? You get rid of the suffering, then you're left with this thing called pain. Mm. So these meditations are demolition meditations. They're deconstructing. They deconstruct all these secondary um, constructs that we bring onto phenomenal experience, especially unwanted experiences. And they basically reduces it to its fundamental terms, which makes it much more workable. You can absolutely positively get rid of your suffering. Suffering is a construct. You can deconstruct that back to pain. With these practices, you can even deconstruct this thing, pain, what we call pain. And through a process of investigation that I can briefly walk you through. Yeah, let's do it. Really take a very close look at this thing. You can even deconstruct this, this, this thing called pain into what it really is, which is really intense, raw sensory awareness. Hard stop. We're the ones that bring um, the label pain to it. We're the ones that bring all our baggage to it. And therefore, that's the second arrow. That's what creates all this unnecessary hardship. And so these are powerfully reducing practices. And and reductionism, in this sense, is a really healthy thing. This is healthy reductionism. Taking things apart, taking things down to their basic essence, and therefore um, establishing a much more sane relationship to like what's really going on instead of what we mistake things um, to be. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, I, I would love for you to guide us uh, in, a, in a process of it, if, if that's okay with you, Andrew. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so uh, in order to really um, explore this, I'm going to just state what the preliminaries are, and then I'll go through the four stages. But as we were talking about earlier, the the first platform is really the kind of the stability, the quiescence that brought about with standard uh, mindfulness practice. Um, and in the book, I'd be a little bit, I'm a little bit more articulate. I talk about um, what's called referential mindfulness or referential shamatha. And this term referential is important because what it means is, and this is again, a more granular understanding of what we think of as meditation. When the mind strays, you're distracted, you refer it back whether it's to body, to breath, to a candle, to a mantra, anytime you bring the mind back, that's a referential practice. So we start with that to tame, settle, um, center ourselves. And then the second practice, and this, as you know, is a, is a genius meditation that I also believe is not emphasized enough in the West, is the practice of open awareness or non-referential meditation. Where basically, what are you doing? The narrative, as we'll see, is you're opening wider, wider. What open awareness does is allows one to bring any uh, experience of mind in formal meditation um, onto the kind of the, the, the meditative platform. It, it creates this beautiful radical acceptance, this wonderful uh, equanimous nature of mind. A little bit like I mentioned earlier with Krishnamurti. The ability to say in meditation, I don't mind what thought arises, I don't mind um, whatever um, arises in my experience, I can bring it onto the path. And so it's different from the, the referential meditations in that previously in that set of practices, a thought can interrupt it, a sound can interrupt it. Well, with open awareness, thought becomes your meditation, sound becomes your meditation. So here we're working with expanding our horizons. The experiences are not yet fully unwanted, untoward, but you start to see the narrative. You're starting to expand. And so with a little bit of familiarity with those two practices, and again, it doesn't take all that long, then you can enter into the four stages. And this this rendering of the four stages is mine. You will not find this in the traditional texts. However, if you look closely, you'll see that it's implied. And so the first step is... Um, uh, you observe it. You create this observational intent where through the cultivation of a witness awareness, like we were doing with uh, creating as many thoughts as possible, you develop this capacity in, in, in that case to just witness the display. And so let's take the example of pain because that's everybody knows what physical pain is. 
the first step is to just get a beat on it, to temporarily briefly step back before you step in, to just get a little bit of the lay of the land. Instead of our your, your usual knee-jerk reactive response to just run away into distraction, into alcohol, into whatever to make it feel better, you're briefly stepping up to just get a better bead on it. And there's lots of uh, supporting uh, quotes that I throw into the book. The second step is, now it starts to get more interesting, you pull this little U-turn. The second step is to come alongside the pain, be with it. So this invites, this is the reverse. You go alongside the pain, whatever it is, and you simply allow yourself to be with it. And what you notice when you do this, is it's it's not all that easy because, again, we're so conditioned to be like, out of there. Yeah, It's like uh, Trungpa Rinpoche famously said, I love this line, you know, um, there is no way out. The magic is to discover that there's a way in. That's mm-hmm. an amazing statement. Yeah, so you that. come alongside it. And you'll notice the, the, the capacity. You want to be up against the first arrow. And you'll notice the capacity for the second arrow to come in. You know, you want to run up in the commentary. God, this is stupid. <laughs> We're doing this right. You got to be kidding me. All the blah, blah, blah. You notice that. And that's where your meditation comes in. You release it and you come back and you simply just allow yourself to be with it. Third one is you start to examine it. This is where you bring in the skill set of analytic meditation, where you start to really look at it. What is this thing called pain, really? Have you ever stopped to take a look? This inevitable lifetime companion, what is it really? What is it made of? And not only is this kind of held within uh, the view of, of this investigation dictated by the um, kind of this thought, this query, this questioning. But because of the second step, the investigation is a somatic investigation. It's not just this analytic cerebral thing. Mm-hmm. That's where step two comes into play. So you're you're actually investigating it in a somatic visceral way, becoming intimately familiar with what this thing is in a non-conceptual way, even though the concepts lead you in that direction. You do the investigation with your body. Your, your body is a crucible for this entire transformation journey. And so then the other thing is with any one of these four steps, you can stop. You can stop at step one. If step one is as far as you want to go, you just want to uh, create this witness awareness relationship to pain. Good for you. Stop there. Great. If you want to go deeper, and this is where you kind of titrate your experience, then you do step two. If that works for you, great. No need to go further. But for the deeper diver, step three and step four is where it gets really cool. And especially with step four, which we'll now talk about, gets spiritual. Mm-hmm. So after step three, the examination phase, the last phase is you actually dissolve into the pain. And so what mm-hmm. separates stage the step four from step two is step two, uh, two is you being with the pain. Step four is you be the pain. You become the pain. Mm-hmm. And this is where it becomes really magical, fantastically powerful, and non-dual. Um, and you can see why you might need some preparatory steps in order to actually do this full bore. And so the the last step is uniting with it or yoking with it. And I like I, I, I use the term yoke because then you have this nice acronym for all four steps. O-B-E-Y. Observe, be, examine, yoke, obey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> obey a new order relationship. And I'll, let me just say one last thing about step four, and then I'll come back and we can unpack it further. Sure. But this is really a remarkable thing because, um, is paraphrasing something that Trungpa Rinpoche once said. And you have to kind of see this for yourself to see the truth of it. If you become one with your pain, there's no one to hurt. Mm. There's okay, just yeah. <laughs> this ineffable, inarticulate, thing called awareness. Mm. A little bit like T.S. Eliot said so beautifully, music heard so deeply, you become the music while the music lasts. Pain felt so deeply, you become the pain while the pain lasts. Well, actually, this is all in quotes. Because what happens when you take this final step, this is where you deconstruct even pain. Mm. You go into it so fully, you deconstruct the experience And then, this is the deeper non-dual spiritual end of it, 
by immediate implication, what do you do? You deconstruct the experiencer. Mm. And so this is a whole non-dual thing. You actually realize there's no separation between you and this thing you previously called pain because self and other, subject, object, lean on each other. You get rid of one or the other, they're going to collapse into each other and they both, they both fall apart. So this is where you have this fantastically powerful, and I saw this with my kidney stones. I can give you the, the perfect example for this, where I literally just dissolved into this thing called pain. Now, there was something still there, right? Mm. There was something still there. It didn't necessarily feel good, but here's the kicker. It also didn't feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> just felt unconditionally real. And that is, that is the most powerful experience because you therefore deconstruct the experience and the experiencer. You're left with what's really there, which is this intense sensory awareness. And that is a profound spiritual relationship to pain. Yeah. So long riff on a really rich um, <laughs> question, but. No, no, yeah. thank you so much for, yeah, I, I really appreciate your detailed description because it gives the, you know, the, uh, the folks listening to this, uh, a, a real clear view of, of what, what's being offered here and also the power, you know, of this. Because, you know, I think it's very challenging to, you know, the language used in the Buddhist tradition, uh, or at least the, the, the Mayana Buddhist traditions or the Tibetan Buddhist traditions you and I mostly work with on a personal level, um, you know, it's either highly philosophical and kind of like jargon-based and you know you, you need a PhD, you know, just to or to become a monk just to decipher it, um, or um, it, it's very um, pith based, yeah. And 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 so I, I I actually see benefit in both of those. That's like maybe a topic if we want to we can dive into the benefit of those because I I think it we kind of earn earn it through through the struggle of that. You know, of, of sitting with the pith instruction, looking, resting, et cetera, and or, you know, sitting with the with the philosophical reasoning based, you know, analysis. But I love what I love how you organize this because it's very straightforward. It's very clear. You don't need to understand a lot of philosophical jargon and you don't it's not a it's not really a pith instruction. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. And, but let me just put an exclamation point to what you just said about the pith instruction thing, yeah. because when I learned it in retreat. It was like six sentences. That was it. <laughs> but what it allowed me to do, and this is the, the like the, the method to the madness, the genius in this, is it allowed me to go in and make the discoveries for myself. Because if, it, yeah. if you're completely spoon-fed and you're handheld all the way through, I'm not saying that's bad, but it's not as empowering as if you go in on your own and you stumble and you fall and you trip and you fake and, and fake it till you make it kind of thing. But then when it comes together, you're the one that's making the insights. You're the one that's having the ahas. And so this is what happened to me with the reverse thing. I mean, I, I basically had six sentences to work off of, so to speak. Talk about pith. Yeah. But because I dove into it so deeply and I started to find my way in, then it's like, oh, my goodness, look at the potential here. Um, so like you said, there, there are pros, so to speak, pros and cons to both approaches, but I really appreciate the way the tradition puts these forth with these really pithy instructions. And then you, yeah. you make the discoveries yourself. Yeah, me too. Me too. And I think it, well, I think it has a natural, either way, I think, you know, as you know, these things require a lot of persistence. You know, because like you, like you said, you know, uh, at the beginning of our conversation, Mahamudra and, and, and also Zokpa Chempo or the great perfection practices, it depends on the practice within them. But in general, they're, they're more simple practices than, let's say, Madhyamaka, you know, where you have to understand all the reasonings and logic, et cetera. They're more simple. But as you said, that doesn't make them easy, you know. Mm -hmm. And there's you know, also I, this, I find simple more more challenging actually in general. And there's also this maxim that I've discovered in, in decades of working on this path: the more advanced the practice gets, the simpler it gets. Yes, you're yeah. you're, you're paring it down to that the is you know ninte the heart essence. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So really, I look back: the more advanced the practice is, the simpler it is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, and I agree with you. There's this kind of it, it's something. 
you know, this is kind of another topic, but I think it's something that um, it, it's tough. It's tough to get across in, in let's let's call it the meditation world in the West, because I think the initial assumption is is meditation is being used um, to get more comfortable, like you were saying. You know, I, I would say that's I don't know the percentage, but I, I would guess it's at least 80 percent of the assumption for people just coming in, you know, and. Well, you know, Alma says something beautiful. A.H. Almas here, yeah. um, I love what he says when he says, uh, founder of the Diamond Way approach. He says, when most people start out on the spiritual path, they're unwittingly setting out for heaven, right? <laughs> and, and there's, again, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that, right? No, what, what else I mean, are we going to do? Yeah. Right. When you're hurting, you want out. I mean, that's yeah. completely appropriate. That's what starts the spiritual path. Yeah. But when you're there for a while, like I mentioned, with the trunk Rinpoche support, eventually you find there is no way out. The magic is to discover a way in. So then you pull this kind of U-turn. You make it somewhat connected to the four stages. The first one is distancing yourself from it. But then you realize, okay, that's that's helpful. That does kind of change my relationship to it. But there's more. So then you reverse it. You do the U-turn. And then you go back in. And this is completely related to my understanding of the path altogether. You know, you, you, yeah. path of, of, uh, wisdom is, is, is kind of the path into the, the openness, the emptiness. And then the, the path of compassion is applied emptiness coming back into form, you know, coming back yeah. into matter, coming back in to all the things that you previously left, um, on your way to spirit. And fundamentally, if you do that again, provisionally important but on, on another level you get the spiritual bypass thing what do you do with the material world what do you do with the world that's on fire what do you do with all the stuff that you were previously trying to get away from well when you're armed with proper real authentic spirituality then you can bring that back with you into all these untoward difficult experiences and find the spirit within the matter find the heaven within hell and therefore, you're joining their, um, the whole notion of samsara and nirvana. And you know, these, these are fruitional levels. But the really cool thing about this stuff, these practices, is you just take it to whatever level resonates with you, works for you. Um, it's all invitational. I, I say in the, in the introduction, this, these practices are completely elective. You don't have to do them. But immediately then I say, is pain elective? Is heartbreak elective? Is old age, sickness, and death elective? Well, if you want to explore a more sensitive, say, spiritual relationship to these, then these practices can be a real treasure. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, and, it, and the first two steps, they really remind me of, uh, you know, the handshake practice from Sonia Ramshe. 100%. Yeah, and then, but I love how I went step three and four. You're really going kind of hardcore into Mahamudra, you know, at that point, you know. And so so you're, you're taking the, that body-based approach because I think, for me, that was one of the biggest hurdles was to understand that the dharma also happens in the body because the body's i call it my vr suit now you know the body's the body's the vr suit and the mind is is kind of stuck in the vr suit right now you know well thank you for bringing that up because as i briefly suggested a, a little while back this set of practices completely empowers the wisdom of the body because yeah. the body becomes the crucible for transformation here your body knows what to do man there's like yeah. sarah it said that wisdom abides in the body. And so you can see this even just briefly um, from our science, our neuroscience friends, where the, the data is that the neurochemical, um, biochemical correlates of an emotional upheaval, if you just leave it, they will be purified by your body within 90 seconds, max. Wow. And so this is actually really humbling, revelatory. Like if you're in a funk, you're in a bad mood, you're the one that's doing CPR. That's the second arrow. You're the one that's keeping this sucker alive long after its expiration date. And so this sort of thing comes really beautifully into play in empowering the wisdom of the body to handle these sorts of things. Um, just let the conceptual thing rest, set it aside, let the natural wisdom of your body work with these sorts of things. And I, you mentioned Sonia Rinpoche. He has a wonderful image um, around step two. He doesn't obviously connect it to step two, but when I heard this from him, I, I said, this is great. Where he has, he, he, he talks about boxers, you know, boxers are out there and when they're, when they're five, six feet apart, they can land a pretty good wallop, right? Yeah. But when they get up next to each other, you know, they get all tangled up. 
what the best thing they can do are these tiny little baby rib punches, right? <laughs> yeah. And so that's step two, right? That's step two. You come right down into it. And the best that the pain can do are these tiny little rib punches, the kidney yeah. punches, because you're so close to it, right? <laughs> so I, when I heard that from him, I said, well, this is perfect analogy for step two of the reverse practices, right? Getting closer totally. and closer, more intimate, more intimate. Until you eventually become it, you dissolve into it. Yeah, there's another analogy. Thanks for reminding me. I forgot. You know, Sonar Mshay has so so many beautiful stories, analogies, and kind of little pithy things he says. I, I now I remember that from a retreat. Um, thanks for reminding me. You know, there's another you know element there where where I think mostly when boxers are doing that, uh, you know, for the metaphor, um, they're resting. You know, they're they're kind of using each other to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. and then trying to add a few little points by doing this little yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. Oh, that's a powerful one well, well really beautiful andrew i i feel like um i feel like uh we we only got halfway in our conversation but i really want to respect your time um is there anything else like you you'd love to share with people just from this book or, or i want or? i want to share one practice with you guys okay let's, yeah yeah let's, let's do it let's do one let's just do one together very brief yeah. Um, I, I use this thing all the time. It's amazing. <clears throat> so I find it helpful. It's super easy. You'll see how simple it is. Go ahead and just close your eyes for a second. <clears throat> and, you know, <clears throat> using this uh, invitation of the body as the crucible for this, this kind of transformative journey. This particular practice, um, I, I playfully call it just the anti-complaint meditation. Mm. And, uh, geez, have you noticed there's no shortage of grist for this mill? So <laughs> much to complain about. And so this particular practice, and I use it, I'm telling you, Scott, I use it every day, is whenever you feel the urge to complain, stop, pause, before you just reactively express yourself, pause, Drop, look deeply into your body, and ask, inquire briefly, what am I feeling right now that I just don't want to feel? And then stay with that. Because you will find in doing this, you will find, and this is a big riff in my book, you will find this contraction. You will find some unwanted experience in your body. And right inherent with that unwanted experience is this contraction. And it's almost as if the contraction squirts you out of the raw sensory awareness in your body and into your complaining head, where then you have to express that discord. And so what this does is it, first of all, interrupts the habitual pattern, reactive pattern to express your complaint invites you back into your body, invites you to stay with that unwanted experience, take ownership of it, and then completely um, in line with what I said earlier about the 90-second rule, stay with that unwanted sensation and your body will purify it. Your body will liberate it. And in so doing, you start to see so many things. You start to see this capacity to mindlessly react and express like Trumper Mitchell says so beautifully I love it elegance is life lived without complaint mm -hmm. stay embodied you stay in your soma you examine it briefly what am I feeling do I feel a little tightness here a little burning here a little whatever you stay with that and it eventually what it will self-liberate it will free it will free the energy it will free itself and therefore, from that more open stance, then if you need to express yourself, you need to do something, you do it now in a responsive way and a reactive way. That responsive expression, right? Eastern traditions, that doesn't create karma. The reactive expression does. So a little bit long-winded, but I think you get the idea. Next time you feel the urge to complain, stop. Look within, inquire, what am I feeling right now I don't want to feel? Stay with that. 
and then watch the magic of your body metabolize and release that. There you go. Wow. Super beautiful. My wife is going to thank you, by the way. Huh. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. God. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I can't but tell I, you how often I use this one, man. Oh, I mean, Amazing. It's really I need amazing. this one uh, probably every ten minutes. You know, uh, you know, the love language of of one of my uh, ethnicities is is you know conversation via complaining. You know, so <laughs> that's uh, you know, it's just I grew up with that culturally that it wasn't complaining; it was just sharing. But other people don't agree with that. You know, it sounds like complaining to them. Yeah, and it actually, when I reflect on it, it, it is so, like it it is pain. You know, it is, it is, I'm not relating to the pain. I just, I'm trying to get rid of it through the complaint. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. So you're, yeah. Last little thing. Yeah. You're learning how to relate to it instead of from it. Yeah. Because relating from it is no relationship at all. You relate to it. And then that's a game changer. That, that, that brings a whole array of skill sets to any experience that allows you to relate to it in a much more enlightened, open, insane way. Oh, beautiful and very practical. I really appreciate you sharing that because I think that's quite practical for for all levels of meditators. So yeah, yeah Andrew, awesome. yeah. W- will you come back? This has been an absolute Absolutely. pleasure. Okay. Great to hang with you. I always love yeah. hanging with you. you. Got so much to offer. You're doing some cool stuff. So anytime, just let me know. We'll do it again. Cool. So so everyone can find you. So your book, the book comes out next week. Reverse meditation it comes out next week. Yep. And then other ways to know about my work. You know, my obviously my my main pla- um, platform is my website andrewhalachek.com. Yeah. I also have a, a briefly a, a platform within that called Nightclub that we started five years ago to support the nocturnal meditations. Maybe we can riff about that later. Um, yeah. and learn about all the other propaganda on, on those two sites. Cool. Yeah, it's a, it's really a great site, and I encourage you all to check out Andrew's other books too. Um, you know, you have a, you have also courses on Dream Yoga, and, and yeah, also, a yeah. number. I have a number of courses, both on my website, also through Sounds True. Um, three books on on the topic: Lucid Dreaming, Dream Yoga, Sleep Yoga. Um, so, fair representation in in this kind of nocturnal arena. Um, the yeah. nocturnal questions, which are pretty fun stuff as well. Yeah, I've been sending, I get that question sometimes about, you know, how do I work with my dreams? And I just go, oh, just go check out Andrew's stuff. Yeah, I appreciate Well, thank you, Andrew. It's, it's really been a pleasure. Yeah, may, may you live long and be healthy and really keep doing this this awesome work. Yeah. I appreciate it. Same same to you, my friend. Till next time. Okay. Okay. Take care. Bye now.